A reading of God's word from Philippians 1, 1 through 11. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all God's holy people in Christ Jesus at Philippi, together with the overseers and deacons, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give my God, I thank my God every time I remember you. In all my prayers for all of you, I always pray with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. It is right for me to feel this way about all of you, since I have you in my heart, and whether I am in chains or defending and confirming the gospel, all of you share in God's grace with me. God can testify how I long for all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And this is my prayer, that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight, so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Donna. Good morning, my name is Mary Negley. I'm a pastor in residence here at Walnut Creek Presbyterian Church. And it's my privilege to be the closer of this whole series, Dear Church. I count it a privilege because we have rehearsed some very important um, knowledge and insight uh, about our life together as the church. First of all, the church that knows God And in the second section of this series, we talked about the church that believes the gospel. And in this third current section, we're talking about a church that practices life-giving rhythms. So two weeks ago, Tommy looked at that rhythm of hospitality. And last week, Sajan talked to us about cultivating virtue, particularly hope. And today, now, I offer a word on prayer. So to give you a little roadmap for our travels today, this is the structure of my sermon. We're going to start with a little bit of pondering about what a rhythm is in the church, and then part of that rhythm is the rhythm of prayer, and a subset of our prayer is the prayer of gratitude and thanks and, and praise, and then lastly, we come back to this idea of rhythm and expand on that idea a bit more. As we all have experienced in the last three years, it is possible for the rhythm of life to be totally disturbed. The pandemic messed a whole lot of things up, am I right? In our family, in our church life, all kinds of ways. We became unstructured, a little chaotic, lots of random things happened, and there was disruption even in the church. We couldn't even meet in person. Our cycles and our rhythms as a church were, were uh, disturbed. We have annual cycles and rhythms. We have what we call the church year or the liturgical year that actually starts in uh, late fall with Advent, going to Easter, uh, Easter, yeah, it eventually gets to Easter, going to Christmas and then Epiphany. And then we have this period of time in preparation for Easter, which is Lent, which starts this Wednesday. So we're right in the middle of the church year, leading to Holy Week, Easter, and past that to Pentecost. So that's an annual 
rhythm that keeps us anchored. We also experience weekly rhythms, like most prominently worship here on Sunday morning at 9 and 11, and at noon on Wednesday. We, our weekly rhythm includes an observation of the Sabbath, where we rest and enjoy contentment in the Lord. And then, more on an individual basis, we have a daily rhythm. Now, your rhythm has to do with getting up in the morning and getting off to work or school, uh, getting dinner ready, an evening routine, time for bed. So, that's more a personal thing, but in that, from a spiritual standpoint, we're also invited to keep a continuing conversation going with God in prayer, maybe time even set aside for Bible reading <clears throat> or a prayer time. It is through these rhythms that the church discovers and celebrates what God is doing in her midst. With this bit of structure in mind, let's look at Paul's letter to the Philippians and get a little background. Thanks, Devana, for reading that passage so well. So you have that before you mentally. Paul had an apostolic rhythm to his life, the, the writer of the book of Philippians. And he would go from city to city in the Mediterranean region, sharing the gospel, perhaps planting a church, or visiting churches that were already established. As Paul writes this letter, his own personal apostolic rhythm has been disrupted somewhat. He's in prison as he writes this letter, maybe house arrest in Rome. We're not exactly sure of his circumstances. But he's making the most of his time by corresponding with the churches that he's either established or visited in the last few years. Hence this letter to the Philippians. What makes this letter unique? What happens in this letter that we don't see quite as prominently in the other letters? Everybody has been talking about Paul's letters for how many weeks now? Six weeks? What's new in the book of Philippians? It pops with joy. Throughout the book, joy permeates Paul's comments, his prayers, his admonitions. In the first few verses of salutation, he reveals that he prays with joy for the Philippians, and he gives God thanks constantly for their partnership in sharing the gospel. He can't wait to see how God completes the work he started in their midst, and he anticipates that God will be glorified and worshipped as a result of their ministry. He minimizes the backdrop of this letter, which is that he's currently imprisoned. He mentions it, so he's, he's not in denial about it, but he doesn't dwell on it. He's clearly made a choice to see the glass half full. And isn't that the choice we all have any given day, whether or not to see life as full of potential and full of God's activity or life on the downside. This choice was really presented to me in a very vivid way as a chaplain uh, at John Muir Hospital. A few years ago, I was assigned to a particular floor and I just go call on people. They haven't asked for a visit. So in room 101 was this uh, lady. She was in her 60s. She had 
some ailment that had required surgery, and she was really in a bad place. Nothing seemed to be working right for her, and she felt that the nurses were cold and uncaring, and she was not connecting with her doctor. The food was terrible, and she was getting worse and worse. Okay. Well, I, I did the best I could with her, um, prayed with her and for her, as I always try to do. Leave the room, go to the next room. Remarkably, almost the same exact story. Woman in her 60s with the same ailment, the same surgery, and her message was, oh, I feel so much better than when I came in. The nurses have just been wonderful, and I've got the best doctor in the world, and even the food is great. I'm just so, so happy. And so we gave thanks to God for that. I prayed with her. I left that room and I talked to myself in the hall. I said, okay, Mary, what kind of person do you want to be? Right? It, the, the choice was so stark. It was just amazing. So Paul has chosen to see his glass half full. Probably he sees it as full, actually. And he, and he maintains by that a positive and grateful attitude regardless of the circumstances. And this has a tremendous impact on his sense of well-being. But what is his secret? How can he do that with a life so disrupted? What we observe in the book of Acts and throughout his letters is that Paul is a man of prayer regardless of the circumstances. Nothing seems to disrupt his rhythm. In the last several years, he's been through a lot. In some of his letters, he actually lists some of the hardships and trials he has been through. But it includes being jailed in uh, Philippi at the very beginning of his ministry there. He was, he was in, put in jail for preaching the gospel and disrupting the city. You can read about that in Acts 16. As Paul writes this letter, now several years later, he's under probably house arrest in Rome. It's about 62 AD. And just getting to Rome was a huge undertaking. He went by ship through the Mediterranean and got shipwrecked off the coast of Malta. In that account, in Acts 27, which is very interesting, fun reading, he continued to pray, continued to serve. It's like he didn't miss a beat. It appears to me that Paul's prayer habit enabled him to keep an even keel, haha, even keel spiritually, to maintain a positive attitude despite huge setbacks, and it enabled him to praise and thank God for working out whatever redemptive pur uh, purpose God had in mind. That kept him going. Now, Unlike Paul, I am personally easily shipwrecked into prayerlessness. I feel like I'm the world's expert on not praying. I even wrote a book this year called Why I Don't Pray. No, honestly, it's been a lifelong struggle for me. So I wrote an extended examine of the obstacles to prayer that saints and sages reframed as motivation to pray. But really, what's, what happens? We forget. We get busy or distracted. We might even resist 
resist prayer at times, or we have a spat with our husband or our loved one. For myriad reasons, we fall out of the habit of praying. So if we're going to get a new habit of prayer, praising, and thanking God, it's got to be something we can do. It's got to be, I'm putting quotes around easy, but there is an easier way to do this than to set aside 6.30 to 7 a.m., sit down with my Bible and my prayer journal and have this formal sit-down time with God. If you can do that, praise the Lord. I give thanks to God for you. For some of us, that's hard to do. But I think that the way to find rhythm in prayer is to cultivate a habit of giving God thanks and praise as life happens in a day. So, So what is that? gratitude and praise. When we do it that way, when, whenever the opportunity in a day's time comes up to thank God, to give God credit and praise, it becomes like the heartbeat of our life in Christ, our, and it becomes the heartbeat of our life together. What is it about gratitude that makes it such an extraordinary virtue, if you want to call it that? Well, first of all, gratitude has got two components. First of all, it helps us, gratitude is the recognition and the affirmation of goodness. Something good focuses on what is really helpful and holy and good in life. Paul later in the Philippian letter says, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is pleasing, whatever is commendable, anything excellent or worthy of praise, let your mind dwell on these things. So we're invited at all times to be looking for the positive, looking for the good. And then the second component is the recognition that that goodness is outside of ourselves, so we give thanks for it. It's coming to us as a gift. Even Cicero, the great philosopher before Jesus' time, identified uh, among all the virtues gratitude as the first and greatest. And I've said many times in the hospital, if I could give every patient a single pill, it would be a gratitude pill. Gratitude is good for you. These two hospital patients, I think, prove that. It does good things in the brain. It stimulates feel-good neurotransmitters like serotonin and dopamine. It reduces stress hormones, so one is more resilient. There are physical benefits of better sleep, lower pain, lower blood pressure. Gratitude has tangible benefits God worked into us, his creation, And it actually has an effect on the whole church when each individual is cultivating gratitude. It engenders among us humility, strengthens our relationships built on affirmation and appreciation. It even counteracts fear and anxiety, which can be death to a church. And certainly, gratitude increases our optimism. That's a holy virtue of hope. So if you're a guest today, you might be trying to get a feel for the atmosphere 
of Walnut Creek Presbyterian Church. The atmosphere that differentiates one group or organization from another uh, is sometimes in impacted by the personalities of individuals up front. We'll give you that. But more importantly, on the condition of individuals in the congregation. In our worship context, not only do we see our own role in extending gratitude and praise as significant to the atmosphere here, but we also know that there's a thing God is doing in our midst with that seedbed of gratitude and praise that produces the inner and the outward movement of the Holy Spirit. It's what we call a God thing. So if you ever feel deep gratitude or praise to God in the company of these believers, it's because God is doing a work in our hearts and in our midst. So here's the big thought for today. Expressing gratitude and praise to God results in positive and life-giving atmosphere in worship, where God is given due credit and we find joy in watching God at work. So it all starts expressing gratitude and praise. Sometimes that comes first and we don't even know what that gratitude and praise is for. But it results in an atmosphere in our midst where God is given due credit and we find joy in watching God work. We want to be that kind of church. We're on our way to becoming that kind of church that practices the life-giving rhythm of gratitude and praise. When we do that, we find a groove. Now, that's a musical term, finding a groove. Ryan probably knows all about that. He's a drummer. <clears throat> but that idea of groove is that feeling of being perfectly in sync in a natural rhythm with the people and the music and what's happening around you. It's not, uh, that rhythm is not like a metronome. Boom, boom. It's not like that. It's more like a heartbeat. A heartbeat of praise and worship. So we apply that to prayer. What's required then is for us to settle in, to take a deep breath and settle in to a prayer routine that is in the bones. Have you heard that phrase before, something is in your bones? That's what I think Paul practices and models for us. So we realize then that prayer is in the bones. It's not a chore, and it's not a performance, but it's as natural as breathing. And so in prayer throughout the day, we breathe in God's life and we breathe out thanks. We breathe in God's hope <clears throat> and we breathe out optimism. We breathe in God's grace and we breathe out the gift of forgiveness. We breathe in God's abundance and we breathe out generosity. We could go on and on. We breathe in God's wisdom. We breathe out insight. We breathe in God's love and we breathe out compassion. So how can we find this groove as a church. The first one is to develop ways where you personally can express gratitude. We do this naturally in our families. You know, we teach our children how to say thank you, starting at a very, very young age. 
We say grace at the dinner table, exhibiting our gratitude uh, for God's provision. But we can keep going on that as our children get older and as we get older, we can start that life list of blessings for which we are grateful. Our small group on Mondays, Monday nights is keeping a running list now of things we're grateful for. We can be on the lookout for God at work, intentionally looking out to see, oh man, that's, that is a piece of goodness there. Thank you, Lord, for that good person. And we can express appreciation to people in whom we see goodness. That's, those are cultivating attitudes of gratitude. But then we can keep showing up for the routine, cyclical, rhythmic expressions encounters with word and sacrament here at church. We come with an expectant spirit to align our heartbeats with Jesus in singing and prayer and in the ministry of word and sacrament. I want to illustrate this by a phenomenon that is happening right now in the state of Kentucky. At Asbury University, uh, there, has be, there has been in the last 11 days a spontaneous outpouring of the Holy Spirit. If you Google right now Asbury University awakening or revival, you'll get a whole bunch of blog posts and accounts, firsthand accounts, of something extraordinary that God is doing there. Professor, the professor Tom McCall of the seminary across the street, Asbury Seminary, which is a Methodist Wesleyan seminary, has written this week for Christianity Today on that subject. And he kind of rounds out his assessment, which is very positive, of this phenomenon with this statement, which has everything to do with what we're talking about today. That is an extraordinary event that just started with an ordinary a chapel service that has extended now for 11 days, miraculously. He says this, We are creatures made for worship and communion with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is the end for which we were created. We are never more fully alive and whole than when we worship. And what we are experiencing now, there in Kentucky, this inexpressibly deep sense of peace and wholeness and holiness and belonging and love is only the smallest of windows into the life for which we were made. It is that life I invite you into. It is that life of worship and praise and thanksgiving to God that we are a part of as those receiving the blessings God is pouring out on us. Let us pray together. O Lord God, King of the universe and shepherd of our souls, we give you thanks this morning for being you, for being the one we can hardly describe because you are so big and great and good and merciful and powerful. And yet, Lord, we give you thanks and praise for meeting us in Jesus Christ, for redeeming us, and for working your purposes in and through us. We surrender, Lord, ourselves to you to give glory and praise to you, Lord, and to give witness to the world that you are real and that you are here. We pray this now in the name of Jesus Christ 
and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.